and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and today I'm speaking with the director of The Harbinger, a brand new horror from the mind of Andy Mitten. I'm a huge fan of your work after watching The Harbinger, I have to say. Thank you. No one has made pandemic horror that is anywhere near as terrifying, in my opinion, that kind of worms its way into my nightmares. (laughs) I literally have not stopped thinking about it the entire time. Oh, that's so cool. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate that. The first thing that I need to ask is, given that pandemic horror has become such a genre unto itself, how did you feel you had to break boundaries within that genre? It felt like a a, a tricky tightrope act from the very beginning. Um, My initial idea was to make sure I was writing a story that felt like it, it could exist, you know, and, and you know, the, the mythology of it could exist outside of this world, but, um, but that would be fueled by our collective dread instead of being sort of on the nose directly about it. It would use it as the fuel for its engine. Um, because while I knew there was sort of a, there were reasons some people were avoiding it altogether, probably good reasons because there's a sense of escapism, but I felt like I knew horror audiences a little bit better. I feel like that's true for, for drama and, and, and other places. But I think, I think with horror audiences, what I've learned is if you're delivering the goods, they are ready to look anything in the eye and sort of, uh, and sort of be on the nerve of whatever is going on. Um, so I couldn't resist it in that respect because when do we all have the same collective dread to draw on globally? When does this happen? Um, and I think as storytellers and as, as audience members, hopefully that's, that's hard to resist. So I tried to walk that line and just picture it as the fuel going into the engine of the machine of the story. Um, but it is a story that could exist uh, outside of it if it had to. Absolutely. And using that image of the plague mask for the main character, this is a very potent and important image that I love how you use it within the film. And I love the character of the Harbinger and what it represents. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about developing that idea. Sure. I mean, I've, before any of this happened to any of us, that's an image that scared me. Um, Even images that sort of reminded me of it that weren't like, like spy versus spy or something like that. Anything where like people have like a beak or there's a sense of that mask. I've always found it uncanny. Um, and that that's like a key word for me. I think from the time I started in horror, like, like striking to the, to, to the uncanny image. Um, and the thing that, that worms its way, you know, into your imagination for reasons you, you can't even explain. Um, and what I liked about the idea of this character moving back into the demon world after spending a couple movies in the ghost world was that I think you can be more veiled and you can be more mysterious. And I tried to create a character where we get to employ the mask and everything else, but we can also keep it in reserve and allow him to be someone as a designer of nightmares who can wear many other faces and be also a shapeshifter. Uh, so I wasn't completely relying you know, on a, on, on, on a, a masked uh, horror bad guy who, who, you know, who didn't have his own voice behind it. Um, he speaks through all the other characters in the nightmare. So I thought that was an interesting way to sort of have my cake and eat it too, and have the source of the fear 
come from him, but also come from unexpected directions. Given that there's so much dreaming horror out there, were there specific points of inspiration for you in thinking about this? Audiences love A Nightmare on Elm Street and that franchise, but there are lots of other points that I wonder, were you actively thinking about them or were you trying to stay completely separate? I do that thinking before I write. And then I try and put it down and make my own thing. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was hard not to discuss Nightmare on Elm Street and and, and the obvious parallels. And uh, but tonally, my inspiration was um, was it actually Jacob's Ladder. Um, uh, okay, all right. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, my my producing partner Richard King. Even before I wrote the first draft, I was on the phone with him, and that's the movie for him. I know that made him want to make movies, um, and it was one of the first things that really frightened me badly, really badly as a kid. And I thought tonally that sort of grounded in humanity, a little bit more down and dirty, was so totally different from something like Nightmare on Elm Street um, that that would be an interesting combination, just in the way it makes you feel. That was probably the main source for me, is sticking those two ideas together. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, talk about a very potent combination. Jacob's Ladder is also one of my favorite movies of all time as well. So good on you there. In terms of exploring what exactly the pandemic means and what disease means and the idea of being swept away so completely exploring that theme the way that you do, this idea of leaving so little behind. What are the fears that you've seen play out in friends and family that this was sort of rooted in? I think we all realized, you know, in 2020, how much of our own sense of existence and our own sense of identity was reliant on our connection to each other and some of the connections we took for granted. And when we we were more isolated during that time, there was just what I was experiencing a really existential dread in that way. I knew a lot of friends who were not, I had a family to be shut in with, and then there were others who, who were not, who were reaching out for, for connections they were relying on and felt like they were disappearing and that everyone else's concerns were so real and so immediate that, that, that there wasn't room for concern of, of them. And, you know, the, the feeling of being forgotten and, you know, uh, also I have to admit as a horror fan, I've always been interested in doing something where it involves the threat of being removed from reality. Um, not just because that strikes to a, a sense of dread, but as a storyteller, one of the things I don't like to deal with is, is, you know, uh, detectives and, you know, microfiching research of why someone's left. You know, if you just forget them, uh, your story gets propelled in this really interesting way. Um, so just in the machine of the story, I was, I was really interested in that. But when I thought of it, I will say I, I was suffering from a really bad bout of nightmares, which is unusual for me. So I was caught in a place where I was dreading going to sleep every night and I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and the movie I was going to make was, of course, canceled like everyone else's plans. Um, so this came out of me really suddenly, almost violently. This was, you know, I, I started writing it in July of 2020. Uh, I had a draft by the end of August and we were shooting in February. Wow. That's pretty quick. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, we didn't, it, it was just enough that it, the process felt correct and not rushed, but it was, it was inspired and, and, and propelled. And, you know, it was 
a matter of like quickly inspiring everyone and, and, and getting on board and, and bringing something together pre-vaccine. Um, so it had to be something we knew we could, we could shoot safely. Wow. It's so remarkable. And I was going to ask that about the actual shooting process with all of the masking that's going on within the film. If this actually is set in exactly the way that it appears to be set. Thank you for that note about the actual rushed authenticity of this. Yeah, it really was. It, it really, it really was a, um, my muse came down and hit me over the head with this one, which is always nice. Given your own experience with dreaming and feeling this insistent dread that inspired you, did you also have feelings of sleep paralysis within that? Was this actually a terrifying construct for you that you were never going to wake up? No, I think okay. I came up with okay. that part on its own. All right, that's that would good. be cool to be able to, I mean, I'm glad I didn't have to go through that exactly, but I, it makes me think of another point of inspiration, which, because sleep paralysis, the idea of that has always fascinated me and scared me. And I'm really glad to be able to say I have not experienced that. But the, that documentary, um, yeah. The Nightmare, yeah. that, that got in here too, for sure, because that yeah. documentary scared me really badly. Yeah, it's terrifying. I will also say my husband suffers from sleep paralysis. Oh, really? It's pretty terrifying every night. Oh, my God. For him and for me. So it's the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) But it's very interesting because watching a horror film like this, you feel all of those connections and you feel all of the existential dread of it through all of these different aspects. And it's really beautiful. I wondered if you could comment a little bit on what it was like to try and portray New York City at this particular time, too, because the COVID situation in New York City is a big part of this film as well. Sure. Luckily, since we were still shooting during a time when nothing had really been solved, you know, the city wasn't as quiet as it was, you know, in 2020 when 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 it's actually set, but it was still very quiet. And it came into actually a main player in that was our sound designer um, because we shot in Binghamton, New York, and we were using a part of it to represent Queens. So to create the rest of it um, also depended on a soundscape. And and my sound designer is my best friend from growing up, Dan Brennan, uh, who lives in Brooklyn and was there with his wife during that time and had all those sounds still in his head. Cause that's still what haunted him is living in Brooklyn during that time, the constant uh, ambulances, you know, the, the, the fear as they would get closer, are they coming to your building? Are they pulling up outside? Is it somebody I know? We tried to string that through the soundscape, which is funny because usually you're stuck with sirens on your soundtrack and you're trying to get rid of them. And, and in this yeah. case, we were, we were sticking sirens into the movie um, and otherwise trying to create that sense of quiet, that sense of which Binghamton helped us do because it's a quieter place than New York. So there's sort of that, uh, that sort of deadness that was outside, you know, that normally probably would have felt out of place for New York really worked well uh, in this case. And of course, everyone in the movie, we were all New York, every cast member we took from New York that both made it simpler on a a safety level to keep everyone, you know, out of quarantine and into a, into a safe bubble. But, um, they, they were all stage actors whose shows had been canceled, the theaters were shuttered and they all had the experience in a really lived in way of being in the city. 
while this was happening. I was out in, in Connecticut during that time, so I didn't have the direct New York experience. I had to I had to be a, a listener and a collaborator on what that was really like. Wow, because the performances in this are also absolutely phenomenal, particularly looking at the two main characters. I think. Both of their performances just draw you in so well. When you were working with them, Brooke, discussing the lived experience and the performance of it, what were some of the things that came to the top as you were doing that? It was easy in a sense because our rehearsals had to be over Zoom and we were still all in that environment. So there we were already from the top looking at each other, you know, in our little boxes. And and I found that to be really great actually because oftentimes you're rehearsing you get into the physical and the blocking and everything really quickly and since we were over zoom we really just got to talk about the scenes the ideas understand it in our heads what it meant to us get to know each other a little bit and um connect about what our various experiences had been we all had a different angle and a different direction we were coming from um but it was also a bit of kismet because Sometimes it just clicks. And this cast uh, had a a real chemistry from the start. Um, Not just Gabby and Emily at the foreground, but the family, Gabby and her her family, Ray Anthony Thomas and Miles Walker. They just, it just felt right from the start. So, yeah, I, I think, I think we, we came into it with a shared vocabulary, both from our experiences and all having come from theater as well. My degree is in theater. So I love working with theater actors. Um, And we just kind of lifted each other up and let it be, uh, um, let everything we've been experiencing personally, you know, come in a safe way to the surface. But uh, luckily it was all, I have to say it was a really warm set. For as cold as the movie is, and and despite the themes and what we were wrestling with, I think at a certain point, we just trust the story, trust the script, and, and let our actual working environment be very warm and 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 fertile and and you know and loving. I'm I'm cheesy in that way. I, I you know I think that the the darkest horror movies are made with the warmest hearts, uh, and that's how I feel about this group. Oh, that's incredible to hear, and I'm so glad to hear that that is the experience that you had on set because one of the things that I think a lot of people have is a misconception about horror is that we must all be engaged in some kind of daily trauma. Yeah. And that we're living out our darkest fantasies on our actors and subjecting them to these things. But in reality, it's been my experience that horror sets are generally the most welcoming and inclusive spaces. Yeah. The whole community and and, and festivals like these and, and, uh, you know, people are always surprised when they come into it. And a lot of our but the actors in this film haven't done horror before and they're just discovering this now in the most beautiful way, how welcoming and warm and, and just passionate uh, the community is. It's the best. It really is the best. And I love that you're bringing theatrical sensibility into this space as well, because I think that's something that's sorely needed. I was a theater teacher for a while. I was a theater and Latin teacher is my background. Oh, cool. and so I came to filmmaking from that <laughs> angle. And so For me, watching this film, it does play out very theatrically in terms of the sense of space, now that I know that. But I also wondered, in terms of working with your child actor, how did that process go? Well, he's a wonderkind. I don't don't know what I expected, but it was 
he's what's funny about him is he's actually um he's kind of like a musical theater kid like he's he was just in a musical like a pretty big musical uh that might even be going to broadway i've seen him on stage like belting out songs and he would be down on the piano like playing phantom of the opera between scenes and uh he just really brought a lot of joy and light to the set um and was excited to be to come and 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 get to to be the horror movie kid like he had some knowledge of what you know the uh, the group he was joining there in the in the tradition of horror movie kids, uh, so I I thought you know it was going to be a lot of working with him and and you know telling him how to say this and how to say that and and uh, it it really was almost like working with any of the other actors. He's so smart, you know. I was able to say to give him the same direction I would have given an adult and sort of get out of the way, and he knew how to be very dropped in and relaxed. Um, so I, I have to give Cody most of the credit on this one. Yeah, I'm going to see him for the first time today. And uh, oh my gosh, that's incredible! Probably, I guess we left set, and I guess his parents are going to let him see the movie. So we'll see how it goes. Oh wow! I think he's in most of the scary stuff, so he should be okay. I think he'll make it through. Yeah, because he'll at least have the experience of knowing. Oh, this is how we shot that. Exactly. Exactly. I think he'll be that's all right. Great. But he's he's the best. That's awesome to hear. I'm so glad to hear that. Everybody always told me never work with children and never work with animals. And the animals part might be true. The animals part really might be true, but I've always enjoyed working with kids. So. There's nothing. Yeah, exactly. And seeing animals on screen, if you can get through it. It's yeah. like a dog's eyes. The ultimate, you know, the ultimate sincerity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I do want to also just comment on the use, not just the use of the sound design. You already mentioned how strong the sound design is, but the music, the use of music in this film is so sparing and effective as well i wondered if you could comment a little on that sure uh it's funny i'm always um i think i probably said on my last movie i was not going to score my next movie of course i didn't know what it was and there's so many other composers i'm excited to work with but for this one because it's spare and supportive I had the main theme of it probably before we were shooting and I knew, okay, I think I can, I can wrap my arms around this one. Um, and for me in horror scores, that's what I end up missing. Like I want a main theme. I want a little bit of melody, but what I really love as well is the contrast of beauty and bringing beauty, uh, uh, other tones into things rather than just like the sinister low drones, um, so it was an interesting journey. I, I probably filled it up because when you're editing, you that's for me, that's the doubtful part of the process where you, your, your almost job is to, to doubt everything along the way. And music becomes, um, my crutch sometimes during that, you know, I'll get scared about a scene or whether I've got it. So I'll stick in some low drone and be like, I'll make them be scared. I'll make them be tense. And then as you get more trust and faith in what you're putting together, you start to pull that stuff out and replace it with more interesting choices, you know, as something that goes against what's on screen or brings a moment of beauty or something that's just supportive or just leave it bare and get the music out of there and, and let the actors do their thing. Um, so for me, it's about just completely filling the tank with all the possibilities. And then I start pulling it out. And the more I'm pulling it out, I think that means the stronger the edit is getting. So it hopefully ends up in this balanced place, but um, 
I'm happy with the score. I had a great time doing the score on this and I usually don't. I usually suffer through it. I absolutely love how you crafted it because so many horror films are really just manipulating you by use of music. Mm -hmm. And in this one, it really feels very natural and expressive the way that it evolves within the landscape anyway. I really appreciated that. I also think the fact that it came from you yourself, do you feel like that added a lot to it? Yeah. Um, you know what it does is it, it streamlines the process so much. Like, you know, if I'm at editing at two in the morning and I decide, oh my God, I need this other thing. I don't have to wait till 9am, call my composer, wait for him to come up with something and stick it in a couple of days later. Like while I'm feeling it and realizing it, I can just run over to the piano and, and try it and sketch something out and get it in. And I, I feel like that goes into the movie in some interesting ways and just, you know, allows vision to appear more organically. But other than that, I'm too, I'm mostly skeptical of myself. I wear all these hats because I don't trust the version of myself who wore the last hat. Like I'm, I'm a director who's just totally skeptical of the writer version of me and is trying to make his work better. You know, I, I forget that that's me. And then when I'm an editor, I hate the director me because I'm just, you know, what is this? I'm trying to recreate it again. Um, and I feel like that's how I keep myself honest. Otherwise I'll get tunnel vision. Um, and I have great producers around me too, like policing me and telling me when I'm going down a bad path. <laughs> but, um, for this one, it felt more serendipitous. And I, I had luckily a lot of people on this show are musical and were able to talk through that with me and get excited. One thing we, we geeked out on is that um, the main, several of the themes have odd times in this movie, but the main theme is in 5-4. I noticed that. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> that, that made me really happy, actually. <laughs> that makes me happy, too. My, My husband geeks. and I are music geeks, so. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's that Mission, Mission Impossible is the other one. Five, yep. four. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's so incredible, though, the way that you weave together all of these different strands in the storytelling. And I just want to thank you so much for your work on this film and for this interview. This has been absolutely fabulous. So thank you so much. Thank you. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. Have a blast at Fantasia. I'm telling you, the people there are just incredible. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, I'm 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 nervous, but it's it's the good kind. So I'm just gonna hold on, try and be in the moment and, and enjoy it. Take care. You too. Great meeting you, Ariel. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. 
You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. Thank you.